And so he goes. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Which one will happen? Let's find out. Next on the Murphy Brown Podcast. (laughs) Ready graphics? Ready theme? Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. She's ruthless and I love it. It's going to be a picture of me walking past Saks Fifth Avenue with my hand out. Oh, one day. No, she didn't. She's losing her mind. And oh no, Murphy. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season one, episode eight. And so he goes. Hey, everybody. Hi. Welcome to episode eight. Oh, see, this happens again, because it's not our episode eight. It's episode eight of the show. God dang it. Gosh darn it, I mean, for no, the never. seats in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I stopped myself halfway through the full expletive. Welcome to 1989. Welcome. It's a new year, a new Murph. It is. Mm-hmm. Slap bracelets, LA gear shoes, Bart Simpson, I Scarves think. Scarves for days. <laughs> And the feathered hair is just feathering some more. I think it was Bart Simpson. I'm just sort of guessing. I know the things that I did when I was like a middle school person. I'm trying to think about when. Well, yeah, we have these computers here. We We do, but we're too busy researching other things. Yes, we have too many windows open. (laughs) Too many tabs. So we're still, I think, on a high from the exciting news. I hope that you uh, will go back and listen to our revival episode talk. Yes, we have some some thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add something because I listened to it and I went, oh. We were running out of time, and I didn't actually finish some important parts of my (laughs) cherry gold cannon. Yes. Oh, good. Oh, please continue. Okay. All right. So you've now listened to that, and now you listen to this. I realized that I didn't say that, yes, I do believe that Jerry Gold was sued for custody of his kid, right? Yes. But I believe that, because it makes sense to the narrative later on, Mm -hmm. that he willingly signed the paperwork because he didn't think he was a good father. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that fits into his character. Because there's a line where he says to Murphy, I don't blossom around kids. And so that, that. that if, if that makes sense, then that line, because that line doesn't make sense otherwise. But mm-hmm. if it makes sense that he feels, actually believes that and is making a joke on himself, mm-hmm. it gives the line more weight. Oh, absolutely. Like he, he rec- he's self-aware and recognizes a quality of himself and has, has acknowledged it in a way that benefits others. Doesn't just make him a martyr. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense to how, I mean, yes, we've had episodes where Murphy has talked about maybe wanting to have kids, mm-hmm. But there's also references that she wants kids to fly cargo mm. and doesn't really understand kids. I think they should be checked baggage. Yeah, didn't even know how to really hold her own son, you know. So, like, yeah. she, she realized when she had her son that she mm-hmm. was a mother and had motherly instincts. So, mm-hmm. and then I think also later on that creates conflict if the character had if it, yes. been on the show with him, but obviously not. But Dramatic opportunities. Yes, of parents are only human and sometimes you have to do things that you think are better for your child and sort of that conflict of like not understanding because you're young well and and especially as an adult finding those that might have been his first moment that everyone has at some point of seeing your parents as people and realizing that there is a choice to be there or not mm -hmm. there is a sometimes more of a choice than not whether you're going to be one but when you put your kids first, like was that choice? If that's something that happened, and if we're talking within this headcanon, mm-hmm. then it was 
why was the choice made? Was it for him or for their sake? Yeah, and then I think that's something that when the adult child comes back and mm -hmm. you have that, that would have been a conflict within story. Yes. Because all of my head canon has to then relate to a story in my head. Obviously, because it's because, an episodic sitcom. Exactly, and there's the only reason to have head canon and to have backstory is to relate to a narrative. Well, and you're fleshing out and build, world building. That's why my I have a lot of head canon. Again, to clarify for everyone, this is not something that has actually happened no, no, in no, the no. show. We've decided that it could this have. All backstory <laughs> in my head that I feel that is happening underneath the lines yes. to make a retcon make sense. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Um, speaking of the show itself, mm -hmm. we're here today. We're talking about, and so he goes. It's the first episode of 1989, and it was written by Denise Moss and Cy Duquesne. And it was their first episode their that first we were episode. talking about. Yes, they were uh, freelancers at the time. Which I had not realized. Me neither. I thought they were already on staff. Particularly, I think, because the Murphy Brown book mm -hmm. that uh, we use starts in season two when mm -hmm. they were on they staff. They were already there. Yeah, and so the assumption was like, oh, okay. And uh, so we've, we've been in contact with Denise, who is absolutely lovely. So Denise shared with us that And So He Goes was a play on Linda Ellerby's sign-off, And So It Goes. Uh, we will be talking more about Linda Ellerby, but a little bit later in, I think we're at summer of 77? Yes. So because Linda, she guest stars. She guest stars, yeah. So we're going to uh, wait and talk more about her then. But just to, in case it doesn't immediately ring a bell in your mind, Linda Ellerby is an American journalist, um, very famous, and we are big fans, so we're very mm -hmm. excited to get more into her. Uh, but she's most well-known for jobs at NBC, she was a Washington, D.C. correspondent. And also, I knew her first as the host of uh, Nick News with Linda Ellerby on Nickelodeon. See, I knew her from that, too, but I think I had seen her on Murphy Brown first. Probably. I mean, my brain may have seen her before, but I first was like, Linda Ellerby, when I was a kid, and she made something that I could watch. So big fans. We have a lot to talk about her, but we'll we'll save that for her relevant episode. And uh, Denise had gone on to write for Frasier and Roseanne, along with uh, her partner, Cy. We're, um, we're also excited that this was... This was a, a freelance job. And so she said, you know, she felt like the luckiest person in the world because she got to write for, for Murphy. And then you're also a little terrified because you don't know if you're going to have another option to do it again. I was actually just watching RuPaul's Drag Race and somebody made a really good comment about like on the first episode, you have to give it all you got because you don't know if you're going to get to stay for the rest. Well, that's like we were talking about, mm -hmm. you, you know, you don't know if you're going to go on to season two. So use all your good ideas now. Exactly. Do it. And she said she was still temping as an assistant on the Warner Brothers uh, lot and that Cy hadn't quit his full-time assistant gig because for people when we say like for people not in the industry when you're an artist every audition every job is an interview and then you go on to the next one you don't just get a job and then you're done doing all of your your day jobs like you have to keep supporting yourself and you're hoping you get a long-term gig but you just keep going we uh Nikki Blonsky on who started Hairspray had that huge role and then was a smart person and went back to working in hourly jobs to support herself because you don't just then get guaranteed paychecks for the rest of your life. Yeah, the idea of the overnight success is not necessarily true. There's a joke about the 10-year overnight success. Mm -hmm. It take it mostly usually takes time. It's very rare. Yes. And and even the stories in, you know, the 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 40s about, you know, people being um, discovered at the uh, counter at Schwab's yeah. <laughs> was not actually true. I think that happened to Marissa Tomei. Schwab? Astoria, no, oh. um, that she was working <laughs> was like, as a as a waitress around the corner from Astoria Kaufman, I think. And I mean, there are sure stories like there that. There are, but that's the thing is that they you know them because they're so rare. I want to just add one thing sure. that uh, she said that Sai's assistant, full-time assistant gig was also at Warner's, and that's how they met. That's so nice. Which is just, I love the stories of how these writing partners met each other and how it was to work together. We look forward to talking more with and, and about Denise as we 
approach more of their episodes in the future. And for those who don't realize, Murphy Brown was filmed on the Warner Brothers lot. Mm -hmm. It's a Warner Brothers show. Mm -hmm. So that's also really kind of cool. And then something sort of very interesting about this episode. So I found out Jesse also had the same issue, mm -hmm. is that I've always confused this episode with the unshrinkable Murphy Brown. They're both about death. Both in the same season. Denise and Cy both wrote them. Mm -hmm. And I would always reverse the titles. I would particularly call in So He Goes, the one about the guy who dies in her interview chair. Well, especially with the, with the emphasis on the he, I think my brain just did that because, and so we watch him go. Yeah. So I think that's why I, my brain told me that's what it was. Well, in emailing Denise for this episode, hilariously, which we all found <laughs> hilarious, and really made me go, oh, I don't feel so bad that I was doing this. We're validated. Uh, Denise had the same problem mm -hmm. uh, and found it equally hilarious and sent us information on the uh, unshrinkable Murphy Brown. So we're ready for that We're one. ready for that one. We have so much <laughs> awesome stuff for that episode. And I just had to share that. It was so funny. See, we're all, we're all the same. <laughs> yes. So, so let's get into the episode. Yeah, let's go into the episode. So we open on my favorite song. And not my favorite song, period, but the favorite song that I chose for the season. For the season mm -hmm. on the website, probably tying with uh, Heat Wave. Mm -hmm. But this song, just like, it makes my shoulders go. It's a good one. It's just, I love the riff of it. I don't even know if that's the right word. It's one of those songs that you don't realize how many words you know of it. And then it starts playing, like, I love this song. Yeah, it's just like, dun, dun. like, it just, ugh, it's a groove that That's I That's like the Jaws dance. theme. <laughs> dun, dun. This is my favorite song. <laughs> hey, I'm sure there's someone who can dun, dance dun, to the Jaws dun, theme. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, I could come up with some dance moves for you. We'll have to do a Facebook yes. video. I think I've talked about this before. Little pet peeve. Mm -hmm. People sometimes call Aretha Franklin Motown. She is not Motown. Mm -hmm. She is Atlantic. Mm -hmm. In fact, little tidbit. Bette Midler says that she signed with Atlantic because of Aretha Franklin. She loved her so much. I mean, I would. Mm -hmm. This song is considered a classic of Aretha Franklin. It is on the Lady Soul album of 1968, which includes Chain of Fools, which includes Natural oh, Woman. That's one of my favorite. Chain of Fools is one of my favorite. Albums. It is a great album. The song was uh, debuted on, at 32 and peaked at number five in the Hot 100 for five weeks, spending three weeks at number one in the Hot Rhythm and Blues singles. And it was her 14th studio album. Also, fun fact, I, for most of my adolescent years, combined Aretha's version of Chain of Fools with the Commitments version of Chain of Fools. Oh. And so when I would sing along with it, I would add riffs in from each of them. So I made this combo of the two. How old was she at that point? She was 26. 14 albums and you're... Yeah, she's 26. I am really slacking in my life right now. Yeah, seriously. We gotta we got we got get going on this. I am in my 30s and I don't have a single album out. <laughs> no comment. Aretha is very disappointed <laughs> in me right now. I can feel it. No comment. <laughs> um, and anyway, so we have this really sort of interesting montage, which is the first time that it's very obvious that this is probably like stock footage from Warner Brothers. <laughs> also, it's our first vision of Dulles Airport. They've been talking about it for episodes. But it's so 70s, very oh, early my 80s. My dad, there's a suitcase that goes by on the the belt at one point mm -hmm. my dad had that suitcase he had two of them well into the i think early 2000s they lasted through everything thick and thin i'm just saying like 70s construction is amazing and the only they finally died because the airport ran a forklift through them <laughs> oh i'm sorry i shouldn't have made that. to last <laughs> So it's it's the airport and people arriving and um, it's of course to set us up to the fact that Murphy has been on a plane, 
Well, not a good experience. Not a good experience. That taxi line is quite packed mm-hmm. and long. <laughs> and uh, this is something that I feel like has sort of becomes a thing where she's in an elevator with a lot of people and she can't get <laughs> past. her way out. It happens multiple times in this episode. Yeah, very much so. And I actually, the second time she does it, remind me, I have a comment that reminded Amazing. me of something. Yeah. Um, so she pushes past these herd of people and she she's got such a great outfit on. She has this fisherman's mm. like hat, this tan uh, Burberry trench coat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that plaid. Yeah. I was like, I, know. I remember once my, my brother was like caddying for a summer and he came home to my mom and he's like, why does everybody have that pattern? He didn't understand. She's like, oh, it's yeah. Burberry. It's the same thing with like people my who don't. My mom doesn't talk like that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly like that. The the red sole, the Louboutin shoes, you just kind of yeah. mentally take that into your mind. You don't realize until later that you've been tracking that. Also, I have a question. Yes. About a potential regionalism. Okay. Is it Burberry or Burberry? Because I have heard it multiple ways, and there's one I person I know. I say Burberry. Me too, but I wonder. Am is, I saying it wrong? Are we saying it wrong? Oh no! Somebody. So I feel like I know one of our social media followers who's probably going to send us a message because I feel like she knows because she's super fashion. Oh, Burberry just sounds so much more fancy. I just I like I like the sound of things that roll off the tongue, and like, I feel like my brain thinks Burberry oh, sounds like I'm I'm working too hard at it. Like Henry Bendels or Henry Bendels? Yeah. Oh. But I just, I think Bendels I prefer. I. I, but I think I'm I a hypocrite say, when it comes to pronunciation. <laughs> I always used to say Henry Bendels, mm-hmm. and then um, someone said it the other way, and I was like, oh, am I trash? Am, am I trash? <laughs> and then that's going to be the name of this episode. Am I trash? <laughs> my, I asked myself. Lauren's I, dream to wear designer clothes. <laughs> I'm just going to write that in lipstick on my mirror every day. I'm like, look again. Am I trash? It's going to be a picture of me walking past Saks Fifth Avenue with my hand out. Oh. One day. Hold it anyway, in. Hold it in for the right time. Back to Murphy's outfit because she's wearing purple. <laughs> so, and purple is one of my favorites. That purple blazer is so good. And she has the scarf that goes with yeah, it. Yeah, which apparently according to IMDb, I didn't notice it as much moves around a lot. Mm-hmm. But I had a jacket like that, but with really big shoulder pads. Of course you did. It was, like my, I had, it was like my felt Murphy jacket. I, I know you don't not, like shoulder pads anymore, but can I borrow it? Um, I don't know if it would fit me, let alone anybody. But I'm going to try. I will look for it. I will try. Um, I hope my mother, my mother is, you know, selling the house. So she's throwing out a lot of stuff. I don't know if she still has it. Well, I but I would like love I, it. I just love shoulder pads. I had that one and a melon one. And I definitely were like very a felty. A melon one? Melon color. And it was very felty. But I bought them particularly to be like Murphy. You had a melon colored blazer? I did. It's, I think it was melon. I just thought of the worst pun. I'm not going to say it. I love puns. Please, Jesse. It just makes me melancholy. <laughs> <laughs> that you had a melon colored Blazer, melon-colored melancholy. Uh, so Murphy <laughs> is wearing my favorite turquoise earrings. I'm, I'm. Hey, we got time. We got some. We gotta, we gotta, go, we gotta go. We gotta, we gotta go. get stuff. We gotta get through stuff. <laughs> no one wants to hear that. Um, jeans and sneakers, mm-hmm. and the collar up, and like she, it's. She's also got like a light purple polo with the collar mm-hmm. up. Oh, I love it. And her luggage is on a wheelie thing. I'm sure. If you travel a lot, you want to invest in a wheelie thing. I don't even know what the hell it's called. A roller suitcase? No, it's... She, oh, it's on its own. It's on its own thing. Yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I was like, wait a second. Yeah, no, that would be easy to say. So she goes, listen up, people. This is fair warning. Nobody start with me today. I'm probably carrying 75 holiday contagious and ugly viruses, and any one of them could have your name on it. And then one of the office workers picks up a bra from the floor and asks if it's hers. It's kind of an old joke, but I do love it. I love it. <laughs> I'm too many too many years of walking my laundry down the street in New York worrying that a piece of underwear is going to like fall out. Also, every time she says bloody coup, even though I know what she means, mm-hmm. I think British. 
Bloody coup. Bloody coup. A bloody coup. <laughs> so Murphy's complaining, you know, that why can't coups be in countries with five-star hotels and towel boys? Frank wants to place where the bellhops don't wear helmets. Mm-hmm. Jim says that they're all soft, that he loved every minute of being in the field. Of oh, I'm sorry. Can I please read this for you? I wrote out every Jim line oh, of please. this episode. Because <laughs> I love that Jim This is a very so Jim episode. It's... It's risen in my esteem and because of how much... he's got such a subtle arc, Jim. It's, it's so subtle. It's so heart-wrenching when you really think about it. He has such an arc in this episode, and it's just everything I love about Jim. So he goes, I loved every minute of my time in the field. Not that I don't love the anchor desk and the feel of an Armani suit. God, that man knows how to make clothes. But one day I may fish out my old reporter's hat and rush, to, rush you to the next scoop. Or maybe race you. That's a really great impression of Jim. I... Lost my mind. I watched it about three times. Uh, and then Miles arrives. Murphy says that she's billing him because a yak ate her glove. I love the way she says yak. Murphy Brown problems. Yes. Um, Miles is looking very ashen. You know, and he asks the gang if they heard about Jack Cowan. And Murphy says, what did the sleazeball do now? And Miles says he died. <laughs> what a jerk. There's like a pause and everyone's like, oh, oh, oh. And then Murphy says, well, the day is looking up after all. <laughs> She's ruthless and I love it. But I love this. I feel like this episode we get the first sort of like inkling of like the miles that we know. What did Mm -hmm. she say? What did she say? Yep. So Miles is very shocked by her response. Even Frank, you know, feels that maybe she's gone too far, you know, sure that, you know, they didn't like each other, but, you know, he was the best columnist in DC. He had the grit of the sitting under his fingernails. I love her response. Murphy's reaction to that is uh, because she loves that image dirty, loud, fat, mean, dead. What I love is she's like, it's a disgusting image and it fits him. And then she lists the dirty, loud, fat, mean, dead. But as she goes, she's each one starts to get a little happier. And when she says dead, she ends up with this just evil smile. She's just so into it. It's a very Murphy smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim wants to know how it happened. Um, Miles says he had a heart attack and he looks at the wire paper that he has, the printout, and he says he was pretty old. According to this, he's pretty old. And Jim, he was my age. Jim looks so... Jim is now ashen. I looked it up, by the way. Mm-hmm. Charles Kimber was 52. <laughs> so young. Yep. But he's double Miles' age. <laughs> I know. I mean, I remember being in, in high school, and they asked people, like, what age they thought was old or something. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I said 60. Mm-hmm. And everyone, or many people said, 25? Yeah, we just had older families, so we had more of a perspective. Well, I've always been an old soul. Yeah, me too. Wanting to be 42 since I was 14. My sister's called me 15 going on 40. I like that. So I've always just been working my way to my actual age of 40. Yeah. Uh, Jim and Frank start to reminisce about the, you know, his old school behavior. What a character he was. Yeah, you know, which is what people do when someone dies. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, that was endearing. I mean, that's the thing that this episode really represents for me is how we react to the memory of someone in death. Mm-hmm. You know, it's people have a tendency to create someone in the image of a saint when they die. Mm-hmm. And for the one of the people, be, you can't change who someone was in life now that they're dead. There's there's a line between turning someone into a saint and respecting a human life. Yeah. And I love the conversation that happens in this about that because Murphy goes to one end and refuses. And then the guys just immediately forget and start laughing at what a jerk he was. And... The first thing it made me think of was Antonin Scalia. Oh, that's good. When he when he died recently, because everyone's like, let's just respect the memory of this man who worked very hard, regardless of his opinions, and so on and so forth. And people are like, no, he was a rotten human being. Like, we can respect his family, maybe the fact that they're going through pain, and still point out the fact that 
he was a rotten human being. See, it kind of reminds me a little bit of when Margaret Thatcher died. Mm-hmm. Because it was mostly the Americans who hadn't, you know, experienced maybe personally what she had done to their country. Yes. Being a little more respectful. Whereas most people that I know in the UK were like, nope. Yep. Terrible person. Like, bye. Ruined my life, ruined my family's life, you know, all this stuff. I think there's some sort of middle ground. I think you can be respectful, but also like acknowledge who they were. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you can, you can respect human life and the fact that it is complicated. Mm -hmm. And regardless of if they're your personal cup of tea, they affected other lives. And this is something that they talk about at the end of this episode is, was there any positive effect from this person? You can respect human life and the fact that a life has, has left and also still be honest about who they were. In relation yeah, to you. And I think a lot of people would want you to be honest about yes. who they were. Clearly, the uh, that... Jack Cowan did. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's a form of respect. Mm-hmm. Just and, Or just like the way that Frank wants to go. Oh, Frank. We'll Look talk about up. Frank's feelings on death. Mm-hmm. So Miles is just, I love that Miles is just like loving it. He's like the fanboy. Like, oh, tell me, tell me he all these is. stories. He wants to be included. Murphy says that that Cowan was a rodent and was the human equivalent of biting tinfoil. I'm going to use that for the rest of my life. It's such an image. It, it reminds me a lot of the, my, uh, in season three, my head feels uh, like a pumpkin three days after Halloween. And it's like, oh, yes. <laughs> I get what that means. Frank thinks that now that Jack is gone, that Murphy should let go of the rivalry. Uh, Murphy reminds Frank that when she checked into Betty Ford, he sent her a good luck bottle of scotch. Uh, Jim admits that he was a heel, and Frank uh, laughs uh, about what he did to her Henry Kissinger interview. And Murphy just gives him this, like, horrible look. And Miles is like, no, what is it? What the story? Oh, no. It's like, well, now that I started it. He's never looked so young than in this episode. Yes. Because his face gets so gleeful. Also, especially in a little bit when we see him just sitting next to Jim. And he's suddenly just the youngest old man you've ever seen. That's Miles, though. <laughs> yep. That's always been Miles. So Frank tells everybody how, well, I guess really telling Miles, because I bet Jim knows, uh, how uh, Jack found out about the Kissinger interview, picked him up at the airport, and brought him to Philadelphia to the Miss Teen pageant. He was gone for days. Three days. Yep. And then uh, they joke how, he ha- how many times he had Murphy's car towed. She says 16 times. She remembers. <laughs> oh, yeah. I-, I love that during this whole thing... Candace Bergen is just sort of sitting in the chair with her legs propped up. Her her ankles are kind of like like going back and forth mm-hmm. for a little bit. Like she's being that sort of like uncomfortable thing you do and you're like, I'm trying to be a good sport, but you people, just stop. Yeah, you just need to stop. This is, yeah, okay, fine, fine, it's enough. Yay, it's, you thought it was funny. But it's not. She, then she, uh, Murphy picks all of her stuff up with her final thing is that uh, the last thing that she did to him was she bribed the steam bath attendant to take his picture and she sent it out as his Christmas card. Which right around Murphy's pony time. For those keeping track. Yeah, good. So that means that she feels like that she won because it's the last, she got the last dig in, the last, uh, to go to her office to find out that her secretary, Tanya. Wait, can we talk about the fact that she ends it with, I got the last one. And then she just gets, as she's walking, goes, game, set, match. With the same smile that she did earlier. And it's like, don't cross this It's like the best day for Murphy. Oh, she's the best day. Absolutely. Game, set, match. Yeah, her new secretary. So her new secretary, Tanya. Is a post-it. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Tanya's at the dentist for the whole episode, it seems like. And what I love is that they go into Murphy's office and it is filled with post-its. Covered in post-its. Post-its are everywhere. And then I also wanted to talk about something. I know we've been sort of, you know, pointing out things mm-hmm. in, in Murphy's office and something I noticed a couple episodes ago, but we didn't have a chance to talk about it. And we also wanted to confirm with Corby that I was not crazy. Well, that's a whole other story. <laughs> is that 
Here's the crazy part. So above Murphy's head when she sits in the chair is this like gold statue thing. Mm -hmm. And I've always known it's there. Yep. But for some reason, watching it on my computer, I went, is that Shiva? Did some research, looked at some pictures, asked Corby. She's like, she thought about it. She's like, pretty sure it is. And I was like, yeah, I think it is. And the thing that got me is that, so when I was younger, when I was deep into my Murphy Brown fandom, I also loved Wendy Wasserstein, and my favorite mm-hmm. play was The Sisters Rosenzweig. It still is one of my favorite plays. It's a wonderful play about Jewish women, uh, and there isn't a lot of representation of Jewish women who aren't sort of the annoying wife or just like the mom, the, the mom mm-hmm. you know, in this sort of comedic narrative, and Wendy Wasserstein was very good at that, particularly in this particular play. It was mostly about Jewish women, so it meant a lot to me, and they were older, and I obviously was an old soul. And there is a Shiva statue in it, and there's a really great line where, um, so one of the sisters gives it to another sister, and then she tries to give it to this man that she's fallen in love with. And he's like, Shiva the Destroyer? I'm getting on a plane. <laughs> and so I thought it was so interesting that it was also part of something else that I really loved. So Shiva is a principal deity in Hinduism. He's the supreme being. Shiva is also the destroyer and the benefactor, the destroyer of evil and the transformer. Mm-hmm. Now, talking to Jesse, Jesse actually knows a lot more about this than I do. So I would love it if you would pick up a little stuff that I didn't cover. Yeah, so Shiva is really interesting for multiple reasons. First of all, he's uh, the third in uh, Hindu triumvirate. Uh, so you have uh, Brahma is the creator of the universe. Vishnu is the preserver of it. And then you have Shiva who destroys the universe so that it can be recreated in Brahma's image. So they're constantly cyclical and working together. The other thing I re- find really fascinating about Shiva is that he's he's known for having very extreme behaviors and passion and so on. But, and many consider him to be a hedonist, except he's uh, he and his wife, um, who's usually seen, it's, his consort is Devi, but usually we see her represented, as, the mother goddess represented as Pravati. And he, Shiva and Pravati are held up as a like perfect example of marital bliss. They're that type of respectful union is rarely represented so clearly in in polytheism. And it's it's very fascinating that you can be this unbound hedonist and yet also within the respectful bounds of matrimony. So this seems a little specific and not a random piece. In no, I think that's a very specific choice. I was very excited about it. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to point it out. But back to the story. So Miles comes in and says he has something that he thinks Murphy should know. And then Grant does this great thing to justify his line. Because the next thing is that he sees a post-it. He puts his head down and then puts his head up to speak so that the post-it is right in his way. And I feel like that's an actor going, I need to justify why I would just randomly pick that particular Mm -hmm. post-it and say something. Well, and say it in a way that makes it sound like that was the next thing I was going to say. Exactly. And I thought it was so smart because you could just come in and like peel the post-it off. But like, why would you do that? Uh, no, it's because Tanya, the second secretary, ruins everything. She does. <laughs> uh, so he reads it and uh, Miles reads it and it's a GYN appointment Tuesday at 10. She just <laughs> says, thank you and takes it. So Murphy starts taking things out of her bag. She has Excedrin, Pepto-Bismol. Uh, she starts shaking the Pepto-Bismol as she's, like, talking to <laughs> Miles. It's such a great little, like, you know, piece of business. It's like this tiny little threat to, like, it's this is going to fix everything and nothing more is going to hurt me. But I also <laughs> feel so- like Murphy has stuff to do. Yeah, she does. And so she's whenever just she's power talking through. to Miles, she's always doing other things. But what it does is it creates... Um, I mean, yes, it creates business, mm-hmm. but it creates a character because that's what people do. They do stuff 
will they talk to people? So pretty much Miles has to tell her is that Cowan wants her to write his eulogy. And she's, you know, not had a good reputation lately. She, you know, was pretty hard on Doris Day. And she he, skewered Doris Day. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and Mur- he wants Murphy to rise to the occasion, so to speak. And and Murphy's like, yeah, no, I can do this. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna do it. Because if I, if I don't do it, I'm petty and small. But if I do do it, he, he knew that I have to say these lovely things about him. But he's wrong. She's going to do his eulogy. And then she like walks Miles over and then she turns her head my way. And it's such a great sort of comic thing. And Miles just looks like this little baby face is about to have a coronary. He's terrified. He is terrified. So it, we cut to a little bit later in FYI in the offices. And we look over at the table and Jim is sitting there with Miles. And Jim's in his hat, his old reporting hat. And he's... Quite maudlin is the word that Frank uses later to describe them all. And he's thinking about unfinished dreams. He says, we all have that one of these days list. And he says he's going to write that book, which I squeed about because Jim's novel is one of my favorite episodes. Season three. He's my favorite as well. He's going to go back out in the field. Season two. And he's going to return to that lake. And this time I'll water ski. Pending. (laughs) Oh, I hope that happens. And Miles just looks like he, he's had an existential crisis. And Frank comes in and doesn't understand why everyone is so depressed about death. And Miles has this great line, which is, I don't know, Frank, maybe it has something to do with spending eternity trapped in a box deep in the earth while your flesh drops off and deteriorates into nothingness. He's so Jewish. And Frank is like, no, that's the wrong way to go about it. You got to just stare down your fears every day like I do. And when he says, stare your fears down like I do, his I do is so east coast i burst out laughing as i heard the jersey it's so jersey it's also when he wonderful. says hat my hat it's so good uh it makes me miss home and he says he every day he walks across third street against the light and he says today a car almost killed me it was exhilarating and miles is like that was my car you're standing like an idiot don't do that anymore and just storms off was, it's weird it's weird <laughs> and then corky enters and her scarf game is on point and i'm love because now i always notice she's in long sleeves based on the obituary we read about the the designer uh and she shares with miles who is just getting rocked by everyone's reactions today <laughs> and he just looks like he's getting a hit in the face that she's never been to a funeral before um, I mean, great grandma Walker died, but she was six and her cousin Dewey, which I just I love whenever she tells these stories of back home because you hear like her kind of Louisiana back home thing. So cousin Dewey told her that everyone would have to kiss her. So she ran away to Jimmy Swedlow's garage and I let him look up my dress. It was a stress that made me do it, Miles. To this day, I associate sex with death. And Miles has this great moment of just horror. And he says, do you ever feel like you're the only sane person on Earth? And Corky, not realizing that he's referring to himself, goes, oh, all the time and walks away such a great moment and then we're back at the elevator and murphy is in the back ranting full speed backing out of the elevator see this particular one as opposed to the first one when she comes you know out of with all the group of people (laughs) i literally wrote in my notes murphy does an impression of me on the subway yes exactly that's that moment was so unifying i was like still happening i literally yelled at someone yesterday because i couldn't put my hand on the pole and then i went excuse me excuse me and his stomach was up against it. Oh. So he looks down, he moves it. I put my hand, he moves his stomach back. <gasps> and I went, 
okay, so this is not happening, is it? So that so this is this is what we're this is our life now. This is what we're doing. Yeah, Great. And I was like, I have to move over here now because he won't move away from the pole. The one time that I will not touch the pole is when somebody is leaning against it, wrapping their butt cheeks around it. Oh, oh it's the worst. The only time I yell at strangers in the city is when I'm trying to go down a staircase and it's three people across. I'm like, you know what? It goes both ways. This is always me. This is as far as I can go in. Stop now. Not moving in. This is as far as I go. Oh, no. The other one I yell about is the when I'm trying to get off the train and people are pushing in. I'm like, you know what? If you let us make room, you can get inside. <clears throat> sorry. I just really. I'm sorry, everyone. I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at the strangers. <laughs> I'm usually very nice. We're very nice people. <laughs> but we become Murphy Brown on this. We are way. Murphy Brown. Yeah. Um, and then on her way in, she's clearly very upset. Frank tries to distract her from her anger. And he says, how about that Dan Quayle? Ding. Dan Quayle, ding. And this is this brings up some uh, some of our favorite Murphy lines ever, and one that we have talked about mm-hmm. that is probably our mutual favorite, which she's so excited about the eulogy that she wrote. She really got in there. She said, "I was able to rhyme egocentrical with bad left ventricle," which yay, we love it. She was in the middle of calling him a bloated termite in the rafters of journalism when this woman named Irma Bentley called her to finding out that she was going to be doing the eulogy because, of course, it had been printed everywhere and wanted to share his kindness in paying for her medical procedure. And this rocks Murphy's world. She said, and then I and then I looked into it and I found out this guy had a purple heart. The jerk had the purple heart. And she's all of a sudden, what I love is that her reaction is not, oh, what a good guy this was yet. It's that she says, my instincts were out for lunch. What kind of journalist does that make me? Yeah, it's about her. It's about her and about her being like, I didn't do my due diligence. So now she's horrified that maybe this really great man has been out there this entire time and she only focused on the stuff that irritated her. So she decides she has to rewrite the entire thing doing her her best journalistic research and heads into the office. Except you forgot one of my favorite parts. Which one? Which is Frank says we all make mistakes to which Murphy says that avocado green appliances wasn't my best idea. Because it's so 70s. My parents had It's just those. because I love an avocado green appliance. So to me, I was just like, I don't consider this a yeah, mistake, Yeah, but Murph. in the 70s, like, people's whole kitchens were avocado oh, I know, green. I'm, I'm aware of when avocado green became popular. <laughs> I'm think- aware that it was a 70s trope, Sorry. as was shag carpeting for a very long time. I get that. I'm saying I didn't recognize it okay. as a, a standout joke because I was like, I still think it was a great thing, Murph. I guess for me, it was more like, oh, my parents. So we cut to uh, Miles is looking at the blinds in Murphy's office. Everyone's sort of sitting around, you know, having coffee. Murphy's been there all, probably all night. Jim got in at 630 and she was still there. Jim's in a new suit. Same hat. Same hat. Jim is kind of depressed. Frank wants uh, him to take off the damn hat. He can't take him seriously wearing the hat. Take off the hat. Uh, and this is, everyone's depressed. And this is what Frank hates about funerals. You know, he thinks that, that you know, you should take him up into an airplane when you're dead, play some good jazz, and drop you out of a parachute over the ocean the way you came into the world, naked. What I love is, before Frank completely breaks, is when Corky says, I just think she's so brave to speak in front of a dead person. And then Jim stands up and says, well, says, yes, a dead person exposed to the world. There for all to see. And as he begins standing, the life finished, even as the goals and dreams lie unfulfilled. And just walks away. Yeah. <laughs> like, m- can anyone take him seriously wearing that hat? 
Make him take off that hat. Frank goes to Miles, that's what I want you to do when I go, Miles. And Miles goes, why wait till you're dead, Frank? Which is one of my favorite <laughs> exchanges in this episode, I have to say. He's one of them. Yes. Murphy emerges from the office. Everyone wants to know if she's okay. Asks if she wants to read what she wrote. She wants everyone to give her a chance because I love this. It's it's her first all-nighter without booze and cigarettes. Yeah, I wrote that's that a, down yeah, too. That's a really great you know character information. Well, and kudos to the addict for not succumbing. Yeah. That's a huge deal for her, especially because mm-hmm. last episode, she almost, which I know wasn't written in order, but mm-hmm. last episode, she almost broke down and had a cigarette. And it's very lovely and profound what she's written. You know, it sounds like something she would have on the show. Like the Byron quote. Yeah. Corky loves it. That was beautiful. And I'm not lying like I did last week when I said you look good in those glasses. Corky's very honest. I love her. Uh, Jim wants Murphy to give his eulogy when he's gone. It was so beautiful. And she goes, will you be, <laughs> will you be wearing that hat? It's possible. But uh, so Miles is very proud of Murphy and then he like awkwardly tries to pat her hair. Okay, can we talk about this for a second? So when he's like trying to pat slash fix her messed up hair, because she's in like a a ruffled version, rumpled version of what she had earlier because it was overnight. The laughs are so hard in the audience in that particular bit of action. Is that Corby's husband? Remember she had said we would hear his laugh? Maybe. This is what I thought. Mm -hmm. So Candice Bergen and... Grant Shawd were known for cracking each other up. Yes. So I'm going to guess that was like the third or fourth time they did that. And oh, so I think everybody's that was laughing. the first time that was done. Maybe. I don't know. Because I don't know when they started laughing at each other, mm-hmm. like how far into their relationship that happened. But I remember when I was watching it going, I think Candace Bergen's about to laugh. Oh, she looks like she's just holding it in. And I feel like sometimes you can, when you watch something and the audience is like reacting to the joke beforehand, it's because they've seen it already. So they, it's like maybe it's either they're familiar with the people and know that that's a very mm-hmm. Grant Shawd thing. Or it's that they've seen it a couple times and they've just got to make it through this this take. But the first thing I thought of was how Corby said they often had her husband in the audience because he had such a, a booming, distinct laugh. We'll have to ask. We'll have to ask. So Frank is very impressed with Murphy. He wants to know if, you know, this is what happens to people when they turn 40. They mellow a little bit. <laughs> it reminds me of my coworkers recently because one of, one of my male coworkers was speaking to one of the female coworkers and he just kept putting his foot in his mouth about her age without meaning to and it was one of my favorite days at work recently because we're just like you gotta stop you gotta just stop where you are man you were just digging a hole i get that you're how old you don't look that at all well thank you you can stop saying that like well you know when you were in high school it's like you gotta just stop Mm -hmm. emphasizing that uh so murphy can now look back at her pranks fondly you know she feels it was it was jack's way of showing affection and then irma bentley shows up in the elevator irma bentley i love her voice it's Jeez. so great. I'm a bit of aficionado about nasals. You gotta love a nasal. It's it's a slight nasal, but I appreciate it. It's not a Gracie Allen. It's not a Karen no. Walker. Yep. But it's in. It's definitely in sort of the. the it's thing. better than a vocal fry. Oh yeah. I say as I settle into my throat. Uh, she has like a hat and her coat on. She looks kind of sickly. Does she look sickly? I feel like they're trying to make her look sickly. Oh, I guess. I thought she just looked shy and nervous, but that would make sense for the reveal. That could be it. That, no, that yeah. makes sense for the payoff is that we think that she's like frail. Yeah. I mean, they're also also covering her chest with yeah. the coat too. But for the reveal. Yeah, but that's what I felt like they were trying to imply. That makes sense. And uh, You're so much smarter than me sometimes. Well, you're mostly smarter than me on this show, so. Guys, we love each other. Yes, we do. <laughs> we compliment ourselves. Indeed. Like horseradish and roast beef. I'll be the roast beef. <laughs> I well, I am Jewish. I probably should be the horseradish. <laughs> as long as there's gefilte fish. You got a certain bite to you, girl. I actually don't even like horseradish, which we've mentioned. But I'll have the gefilte fish that's on the side. Nice. And then we'll be good. Fine. Great. Perfect. Okay. So back to Murphy. Mm. Murphy just wanted some more background. They go into her office. And, of course, the joke that we find out is that... Uh, 
he paid for Irma's breast implants. Mm-hmm. I love the <laughs> you, way she says... You can't even see the scars. I love the way she says, pull in the really big tips. <laughs> really big tips. I really wrote it down. <laughs> I, I love this actress, by the way. Her name is um, Delaine Matthews. Both of us had the same reaction when we double-checked her IMDb page, which is, dang, this woman aged beautifully. Congratulations. Congratulations, Delaine Matthews. Give me your secrets. So Delaine Matthews is probably best known for playing Beth Barry in the CBS television sitcom Dave's World, uh, which ran from 93 to 97. Uh, she was also, as we've been discovering, uh, Quantum Leap and Bacula apparently seems to be a six degrees of Kevin Bacon kind of thing mm-hmm. within the Murphy Brown world. Uh, so she was in an episode of that, which was about a Geraldo-like character. And also had Alan Oppenheimer, who played Gene Kinsella, the head of the news division. Uh, Gene Kinsella, we'll, we'll see more, but he was often in a lot of story arcs invol- involving the network politics. Um, anywho, she, I love her so much in this episode. Like we had talked about the mom in Murphy's Pony. Like she's someone who came in with a smaller, so she took this small guest role and makes such wonderful choices that she sticks out to you. Her vocal choices, like without a little extra leverage, it's hard to pull in the big tips. And she does this little sit up when she does the big tips. The really, big, the really big, really big. Anyway, we're, we're big fans and she does some great things with only a couple lines. Casting is always so good on this show from every, you know, from one line, from an under five. It's to investing an in somebody who makes such great choices in such a small role. Th- those are the actors that I always end up watching out for mm-hmm. later because... They know how they fit into the larger piece and they make wonderful choices and just add to the the texture of it rather than being forgettable. Yeah, that's why I always gravitated towards guest stars. It was always and is still my favorite Emmy category. Mm-hmm. You'd have fun. Yeah. Remind me, um, we don't have time now, but um, I have a really funny story about Jay Thomas, actually, and my goal to be a professional guest star. But I'll save that story. It's pretty funny. Well, I love it because so she says that, you know, Jack paid for the implants. He, he's helped a lot of the girls. And it's just a couple of days in the hospital. And ooh, you're pulling in 25K a year. 25K a year. I wish that was impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's not actually impressive that is, now. Uh, not anymore. Uh, and I, she says, you really need an edge in the cocktail waitress business. Then she looks to the side and goes, Jack knew that. It's so serious and dramatic. And then Murphy breaks a pencil. <laughs> and just rage. Uh, so then we cut to Murphy's house. And she's on the phone. Because now she's she's looking into this and realizing, wait a second. You were fine. Like, you were healthy. Like, realizing this wasn't, he didn't save her life. He got her a boob job for more tips. Mm-hmm. So she she's on the phone and about to hang up and saying, yes, I understand. A wound is a wound. I get it. And hangs up. Um, and then right before that, she bangs her head up against the wall <laughs> while she's talking to him, which is the most amazing thing. Because she's you can see she looks crazed. Like she's still in the same outfit. So she's I don't been, think she slept. No, she didn't. She's losing her mind. And Eldon's just standing there staring at her very because he's just not able to get anything done but he does that thing that Eldon a lot of times does when he's just like so unhappy but he just sort of like downtrodden and like yeah okay like you can leave Eldon this isn't your wife you're not stuck here Eldon and so she explains that um, he was wounded but his own men were trying to kill him because he had cheated at poker and then as he was running away from them, he crossed into enemy territory and then he got shot trying to get back in. And she said she's raving about the fact that she almost wrote this this wonderful eulogy for the man. She's like, the man is dead, but he reached back from the grave and got me. Then she throws herself down in front of the trash. And this is when Eldon is like, geez, what were you like when you were boozing? I love also she like grabs his shirt and he's like up against the wall. Oh, like, she's, she's a mad woman. So crazy. I love it. And then she says, instructs that he get involved and start going through the trash. And that's when he says, geez, what were you like when you were boozing? Because she has to find her old speech that had been so great. And she says, you know, 
she'll find what she needs and then she'll just make up the rest. What I love is he's, he's not touching old cotton balls. And she's like, be a man. Finally, he reaches in and he pulls out a banana peel and there's a piece of paper rolled up inside. And he reads, he says, as appealing as a ball of phlegm. She's like, that's it. We're on it. And then, yes, we're on our way. We're on our way. <laughs> so great. I have to say her insults are amazing. They are. So we cut to the funeral. There's a wreath from the gals at Tiny's, which is the cocktail bar type place that That's where Irma, Irma works. works. Yeah. yeah. Tiny's. Miles is exasperated to see Murphy. Murphy is wearing this great pink outfit with a, the collar pulled up on this white shirt and this brooch. And I've seen this in a lot mm-hmm. of publicity pictures. She's at a funeral and she's in violent pink mm-hmm. and the sparkly brooch. Like I didn't quite realize until she goes and sits down with Corky that she has chosen at a funeral where she is giving the eulogy to give her final middle finger of a violently pink blazer. Everyone's in sort of dark colors and black. It's and, amazing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Miles was like, where has she been? He was get, You could tell he was sort of getting nervous as she's putting the finishing touches. And she looks around and goes, ah, he's more popular dead than alive. And, and Miles' no. face! He just turns. Oh, no, Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, like, just some, oh, no, he's just doomed. Then Murphy starts making fun of the, uh, the coffin, and then it was an extra large. God, that man was fat. <laughs> They're going to have to take him out in a forklift. Ooh, I should use that. Uh, Murphy runs into Corky, who looks like she's dressed in a movie funeral. Oh, gosh. She has the little hat with, like, the black oh, bird cage. Great, great hat. She looks great. She's got a little brooch. That was, the, that was the moment when I was like, wait, Murphy's in violent pink. <laughs> and then Corky is pretty much having a one-sided conversation with Murphy, which she tends to have a oh, lot. Oh, yeah. She's projecting is, everything. Just, yeah. just get through it. We're going to be girls together, and we're going to do this together for each other. I know how you feel, but we have to look. We have to look at the dead body. We can't hide from the unpleasant our whole lives. I, I just always love that, that Corky is, is like make, sort of making up this sort of like uh, womanhood that they have together, yes. which eventually they do end up they having. Do. But it's she, kind of like she, when, when Miles is like, we are going to have a good relationship. Where Corky's just like, we are girlfriends, whether you realize it now or not. Like we're not. We're not. Um, can I please read Corky looking at the body? Yes, you can. <laughs> this is this is my favorite kind of faith forward work is when Corky's just like in a, in a defining moment. And she, they stand up there and she's looking above kind of at the coffin lid and not down yet. And she goes, OK, this is it. I'm going to look now. And everyone's kind of looking at her like, what are you doing? And she's Frank particularly. Right. Yeah, looks Frank like is her, like he- disturbed. Several times this season, he's looked at her like, what is happening? What are you I doing? just love it. So she goes, here I go. One, two. And then she looks down on what should be three. And she goes, this is me looking at a dead man. I'm still looking. He's got food on his tie. <laughs> and then can't stop looking. Frank has to pull her away yeah. from the coffin because mm-hmm. now she's just in. So we're going to start. Miles is behind Murphy and he's trying to, you know, hey, his mother is here. Like trying to make her think, you know, how can she do this in front of his mother? She flew in from Minneapolis. Yeah. She's 86 and a half. And you see this, the conflict on Murphy's face. Like she looks at the mother and then she's not sure. At least we think of Colleen Dewhurst coming up and like what the mother moment means. Sorry. I just can't. So you're not sure what Murphy's going to do. You're not sure. I don't think Murphy's not sure. I don't think she sure knows what she's going to do. And she's fell into sort of, she starts to talk about truths, you know, how big he was and, and things that aren't necessarily lies, but are just sort of like facts. And then she kind of levels with, with the crowd. And it's like, if there's anyone out here who can say one good thing about him, she will not read the horrible speech that she did. 
Just one thing. And no one can. She's like, there's gotta, there has to be somebody. And then what about his mother? And she stands up. And all she can talk about is how long the labor was. For starters, it was a 38-hour labor, a breach. He had a head like a basketball. And the entire room's like, oh. <laughs> and there's she's like so one tiny. really amazing laugh, too. <laughs> like, that it's the funniest thing that they've ever heard. Mm-hmm. So it's that same laugh. Uh, Murphy uh, decides to go into it. And she says, what can you say about a man who locked a sheep in Shirley Chisholm's hotel room? And I, I want to talk about Shirley Chisholm because she was really awesome. Shirley Chisholm died January 1st, 2005, an American politician, educator, and author. Uh, in 1968, she became the first woman elected to the United States Congress. She represented the New York 12th Congressional District. She became the first black candidate for a major party's nomination for president of the United States and the first woman to run for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. Mm-hmm. Overall, she won 28 delegates during the primaries process itself. And also interesting is that that I feel is important today is to say that Chisholm's base of support was ethnically diverse and included the National Organization of Women. Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem attempted to run as uh, Chisholm's delegates in New York. Amazing. So I wanted to take a little notice if anyone maybe didn't know who she was and you should read more about her. So only a jackass would put a sheep in her hotel room yeah. is what we're saying. Someone who doesn't like feminists. So Exactly. So time has passed. You can tell significant time has passed. And we're to the end of Murphy's speech. And you can tell that all of a sudden, now Murphy's almost like a stand-up comedian at this point. Like <laughs> She's just going for it. And she goes, that was Jack Cowan, a man who stole chafing dishes off room service carts and gave them as wedding presents. And one guy's like, hey, we got one of those. A man who wrote zeros on $1 bills and told Girl Scouts they were 10. A man whose idea of grocery shopping was helping an old lady with her bags and then outrun, and then outrun her. Friends, let me close with this thought. They say that when a man departs this world, he leaves his mark on each one of us. That is true of Jack Cowan. For I'm sure there's not a person in this room does not have Jack's footprints all over his back. And raucous applause. And then the minister, played by Dan Ziske, who many of you probably know best for um, playing the vice president on House of Cards, Jim Matthews. Still works. Uh, Yep. And very, he's been in a ton of stuff as well. They got really good guest stars Mm -hmm. on this show. Shares that he's now going to read a letter that Jack wrote at the end of his life that was only to be read once Murphy Brown had concluded her eulogy. And he opens it up and you hear that he's going to miss you, kid. He says, I'm going to miss you, kid. And he starts talking about their special relationship and how they would, they would trade stories at the bar and laugh about them. And Murphy's slouching in her seat, just being like, we never laughed. We never laughed. And she's like, oh, that guy. And I wish I had told you um, how much you meant to me and that you made me a better journalist. And she yells out, the man hated me. He tried to stab me with a shrimp fork. And that she was both a good sport and a good match. She took no guff, swallowed no pride and never backed down. And then he says, here's to you, my best friend in the whole world. So question for you. Yeah. Do you think he's lying or she doesn't remember because she was drunk? I think it's a mix. So what I think, I wondered, the first thing I thought it was like, did she actually have a better relationship than she remembers? Mm-hmm. But I also think that there is the combo of, to his dying day, part of what he loved about their relationship. And you know, we all have different, we all see our relationships through our own lens. And I think there's the opportunity that to him and his love language, if you will, this was his best friend because they had this, they never had these delicate smooshy moments Mm -hmm. and that in his dying breaths he set her up for a position where he knew based on who she was that she couldn't give him 
a frothy eulogy. And then he would win and get the last prank by leaving a heartfelt thing that he would never have said in person. Mm -hmm. And I do, I, my instinct is that, yeah, they actually did laugh around a bar and she just forgot that. Or perhaps she didn't realize that on his side of it, they were having a great time yelling at each other at a bar. Every time I watch it, I change my mind. I can't, as I'm talking, I'm changing my mind. I right watch now. it once and I go, oh, he's totally lying. And then I go, no, I think maybe she was too drunk to remember. But I'm also, I'm not but sure. But I like that, the combination. I think maybe yeah. I'm going to go with that. Well, and I wonder if it's just, he's not lying. He's just telling his interpretation of their relationship, which was that. Or he's fulfilling his side of the relationship and getting her one last time and making her look like a jerk. Anywho, so everyone starts falling out. Now people are crying because they're so touched and they're filing out. And she tries to shout out um, the oyster line that she had said earlier that he was. She's kind of giving her. Whole, she's trying to do the whole speech, I think. Yeah, the original. Yeah, the original. Speech. Yeah, it's so. Or no, the second speech, the, the, the nice one, one the that nice she had word. written. Yeah. Because um, she had said she starts yelling out. He's an he was an oyster of journalism, rough hewn, clenched, but you'd be rewarded with a pearl of kindness and generosity. She's trying to yell it out and nobody's listening to her. And as she's trying to yell it out, Miles comes up behind and says, If you hurry, you can still trip his mother. And I love Frank. And sweet Corky comes up and oh. she's like, I I wouldn't want you speaking at my at my funeral. Thank goodness you'll die long before me. And Frank comes up to rib her by saying, Don't worry, not every publication was here today. No one showed up from the Daily Planet. Such a great friend. I know. <laughs> he takes off. And then Jim walks up and he tells her it's time to face the facts. It's over. Oh, but what's great is that she says that says to the casket, she like starts yelling at the casket mm-hmm. and lecturing this dead body, and she goes, It's not over yet, Jack. And his reaction is It's time to face the facts. It is over. Yeah. And she says, Why can't I let go of this basically? He says, Maybe it's because you'll miss him. And she's like, and what I love is this next line because it's it's so so well acted and she says he told we we weren't friends i won't miss him he told the afghan ambassador if he came to my house with oranges and a garter belt that i'll bear his children and then she does that like kermit like laugh that i love it's four laughs and she goes no i refuse to admit i'll miss him and jim has the best pearl of wisdom just accept it murphy death sucks (laughs) and the you hear the audience laugh again because it's such a it's such a colloquialism (laughs) not a jim thing and he says all we can do is honor honor the dead by keeping their memory alive and hope that others do the same for us. And he takes off his hat. And then I wrote, end of Jim's arc. Yes. Taking off the hat means he's okay with it. Exactly. He's accepted. And he just says, you know what? I just hope that everyone will do this for me. And you see him just come to acceptance. It's so beautiful. He's really the arc of the episode. I mean, this is what we talked about with Norm. That like, these these punches at the end Mm -hmm. of these episodes that make it a different show and have a different impact. And uh, and have a dramatic moment and, and make this sort of frothy, fun episode. Well, and it hits you when you're not expecting it because you're yeah. laughing. You know, they, the hat has become such a punchline and he takes it off. And while you're laughing about the hat and the drama of it, it hits you in your heart. And then he, then they, again, in this very touching but humorous moment, he starts to try and hug her, but neither of them can figure out how to move. So he just does this awkward, like one, I call it the one-armed slugger hug. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, slugger. And he just hugs her around the neck with one elbow. He will be able to hug her eventually. Yes, which and is, it's so wonderful. Yeah, so it's a nice art there. And what I love is she starts to leave and then she comes back to the casket. He pulls out a pair of Groucho glasses, which are has the nose with the mustache and the big glasses. And she looks down like kind of fondly and she puts the glasses on the corpse and then closes the casket so that he will go into death with those on. And... As she's starting to turn around to leave, one of the attendants of the the funeral home comes and asks, are you, is, was that your car? 
it's being towed. And the ending moment is her looking back angrily at the casket in, in disbelief. It's just like one of those great Murphy looks. I really hope that he arranged that. I want, in, it, in my head canon, Jack was like, this is what she drives. You need to tow it. Oh, yeah, no. I, I need that to happen. It absolutely happened. Because I think this was a both a goodbye to her and a last F you. I agree. And that's, and well, and so he goes. And so we go. And so we go. Yeah, we did it. We got it in there. But we're not trash. We are not trash. Am I trash? Are we trash? No, the rule of three you didn't know, work. It's just a bad joke. No. Hey. Take it every, back. Some man's trash is another man's treasure. Eloquently put. But some woman's trash is another woman's treasure. I'm going to think about that. Mm -hmm. As should you guys. Everyone, take this. Take this on for, the, for your week. Start your week wondering, am I trash? But also treasure. <laughs> All right, now we're just going too far. We're the this. worst. Okay, so please follow us on social media. Please, we please, are please. we are everywhere as Murphy Brown Pod. Our email is murphybrownpod at gmail.com. Our website is murphybrownpod.com. Send us your thoughts, your cards and letters. To mm -hmm. Quote David Letterman. Because <laughs> no one sends cards and letters anymore. They sure don't. Nope. Please leave us a voicemail or a short message on how Murphy influenced you, how excited you are about the revival, a little tidbit that we can put maybe as our bumper or our closer at the end of the show or edit it in somewhere. We would love to. That phone number is 646-450-6902. We would love if you would drop us a review on iTunes. Mm -hmm. It's a free way to support the podcast. Hey By leaving a review on iTunes and a rating, it actually bumps us up in visibility so that more people can find the podcast. And also, it's we like knowing that people are listening and enjoying what we're doing. You can also uh, listen to the Murphy Brown Empowerment playlist on Spotify. Mm -hmm. So you can rock out before listening to an episode or just, you know, every day. Listen to some, some Motown, some Atlantic. It's a great getting ready for your day kind of music. Music inspired by and from the series Murphy Brown. And we'll be regularly updating it with Absolutely. other things that inspire us or inspire you. But regardless, it's a great playlist. It's um, music from and inspired by Murphy Brown. So our ne uh, next week, we'll be here with episode nine. I would have danced all night. It is a pivotal episode. Oh, yes. In the development of Murphy Brown, which we will talk about next week. Mm -hmm. And the song, if you want to listen to it, is uh, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow by the Shirelles. I love that song. Written by one of my heroes, Carol King. Oh, Carol, yes. He and Goffin, but Carol's my hero. And we'll see you next week for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast.